0: I'm low paid. Eleanor Roosevelt said in 1935, The fundamental purpose of feminism is that women should have equal opportunity and equal rights with every other citizen. However, polls show that one-third of American respondents believe feminism does more harm than good. In her new book, Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce, Elizabeth Cobbs tells the story of women who dared to take destiny into their own hands, feminists and anti-feminists, activists and homemakers, victims of abuse and path-breaking Professionals. Her book is published by Belknap Press, a division of Harvard University Press, and brings novelist, historian, and filmmaker Elizabeth Cobbs to our show now. Welcome.
1: Hello. So happy to be here again.
0: Uh, You open your book by relating how three of your good friends, all women professors, told you that they do not consider themselves feminists, and, and others have told you that as well. Why did they object to being called feminists?
1: Well, that's such a great, you know, such a such an interesting question, because I was starting this book thinking, well, you know, this is a legitimate historical topic. And what is feminism and how has it evolved and how, to, how has it driven our country's progress? And and so I was had these totally innocent conversations with two, three friends. And I said, so, you know, I'm just kind of a woman on the street sorts of things here. Do you consider yourself a feminist? And, you know, whatever you say, it's fine by me and these three women who had all really you know symbolized all the how far we've all come together all said oh oh no no i wouldn't consider myself a feminist and so i thought it was like right there you know was such a a, a moment where you had to say well gosh how how could it be that this idea of gender equality which we all profess to believe in could then become so tarnished
0: well because people- they they said that it meant a difficult person with extreme views that Uh, That's not what feminism means, is it?
1: Well, I don't think so. I mean, let's put it this way. As you certainly well know, I mean, there are extremists in any group of people, um, but that's not feminism at all. I mean, my gosh, you look at someone like Abigail Adams or Beyonce, and you don't say, oh, well, there's an extremist for you. No, these are just... Really, you know, lovely, fun, interesting people of just real patriotism, a real heart.
0: And you you say feminists saw themselves, I'm quoting, as helping the United States achieve its own goals and subscribe to the belief that women and men are entitled to equal dignity and opportunity. That seems reasonable. (laughs)
1: yeah well, I think so too and i I was so charmed when I found that quote by Eleanor Roosevelt where the first lady in nineteen thirty five is defining what feminism is, and she's defining it precisely that way um It doesn't seem like it's crazy to me, but really they pretty much all of these people and someone like Abigail Adams, you know this was that Adams household was ground zero for the American Revolution. And of all people who really wanted to see America flourish, it would be someone like Abigail Adams. And and her work did. I mean, she was one of those early people, the first, in fact, to advocate for the idea, for the crazy, the crazy, you know, call me crazy idea that girls should be able to go to school. Mm-hmm. And that fact, I mean, her work with that and that of other revolutionary men and women of her generation brought about universal education, Leonard. And that's. You know, that's how we get the Industrial Revolution, because America becomes the best educated country in the world in the 19th century, and that was because of feminism to an important extent.
0: But even beyond education, when America became a nation, a woman had no legal existence beyond her husband, and if he abused her, she couldn't leave without abandoning her children. That was something that Abigail Adams tried to change and reminded her husband, John, to remember the ladies when he wrote the Constitution. But didn't he simply laugh?
1: Oh, yeah. Now, so, John, it's funny. I think we always, you know, it's kind of a famous quote when Abigail says, remember the ladies. And what she says is, don't make us the vassals of your sex. Mm. That's that's a, a quote as well. And But what she also says, listen, most men are not this way. But if you put unlimited power into the hands of any individual, every man can be a tyrant if he wants. And so she really, you know, she had this idea that you can't just rely on romance and love to help people be fair, that law should be fair. And to your point, Leonard, he said, oh, I cannot but laugh. And it's and he went on to say, you know, this was basically a silly idea of hers and and also to accuse her. And I think of him as kind of in some ways the first anti-feminist, at least in this part of his thinking, because he, he accused her of being disloyal, difficult. And disloyal, and he said the enemy, meaning the British, or you know stirring up discontented folks everywhere. And of course, he mentions you know enslaved Africans, <laughs> American Indians. He's talking about these groups. He said, "Oh well, this is you know this is terrible. If we, you know, if things if you people like talk like you did, Abigail, well then you know what would happen." But so on one hand, he completely blows her off, and then he makes it sound like she's just being silly. But then. Like a month later, he talks to a man, a male friend of his, and he said very seriously, <clears throat> he said, you know, you can depend on it, sir. women will ask for the vote if we go too far down this road. And so where will it all end? We have to be really careful to keep the lid on all this.
0: Well, like most of the founders, didn't Adams conceive of the new nation as a place where white men governed?
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's this weird thing, Leonard. I mean, I know you've thought about this a lot, and this is back and forth question of there are a lot of reformers try to get what you can at a certain moment. If you are within your context, within the context of the times, if you ask for everything, then you might get nothing at all. So, you know, but also Adams was a white man, you know, and so the idea that, you know, that the the states would remain ruled by a certain group of people, they had to be able to get you know, consensus on that—they hadn't even yet declared independence. So, if they try to start rewriting a social contract, you know, they're afraid that the Continental Congress will come will fly apart, which it almost did a bunch of times. So, he he wasn't crazy.
0: Well, they were—they were uh, fight, they fought the revolution because uh, they were fighting the tyranny of the British kings. But she told her husband that all men would be tyrants if they could. Wasn't she <laughs> right. reminding him of? what was going on at the time, or did he not see the connection?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. He saw the connection. That's why it's so funny because she, I mean, she was just this very smart and very interesting person, you know, since With laws, the book, by the way. Well, for example, coverture, you hmm. just pointed to that. That was a law where it's called coverture because it was, you were covered by your husband's existence. So if you were a married woman, you literally legally, ceased to exist. You had no right to sign contracts. You had no right to own property. uh, You had no right to your children. If you gave, quote unquote, gave your husband a child, you really gave it to him. (laughs) You could never get it back. Um, And so this was this absolute sort of weird kind of thing where women cease to exist. Like, for example, women couldn't even, couldn't even commit a crime because if you committed a crime, it was assumed that your husband put you up to it. So, well, you know, so there was this weird thing that happened where women just really had no reality in the law. And so that just left them terribly vulnerable. And one of the things I do, Leonard, in the book is that I'm trying to look at both Each chapter has two women. One I call the face of feminism. She's Mm -hmm. kind of the person who cares, you know.
0: Eight chapters with two women in each of the. the, uh, the
1: Yeah, right. So it's written with a biographical emphasis, and and that's partly just to make it fun, you know. I think reading should be, you know, should tear you along at a fun pace. Uh, So in each chapter, there's one woman who, you know, lobbies in some way for changes in the law or in practice that would allow women to have a better deal. Then there's a second person who's just kind of like, my gosh, what would that be like, Leonard, to have no rights? What what Hmm. terrible things might that make you, you know, vulnerable to? And that second person is always that person where you go, oh, my gosh. Now I see why we have to change a lot. And so even people who never thought of themselves as you know, particularly eager to make women equal, they still thought, oh, my gosh, we now, can't. Now,
0: men also got involved in fighting for women's rights during the, the summer of 1787 when George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, and other founders were writing the Constitution. Didn't some male reformers who shared Abigail Adams' vision launch the first Ladies' Academy on Cherry Street in Philadelphia? That was just a short walk from Independence Hall. So they were making a point, weren't they?
1: Yes, they were making a point. This was this fascinating thing where, and one of the founders of that was Benjamin Rush, who was, Mm. you know, one of the... You know, closest members of that coterie of of you know, Jefferson and Washington and Adams, who were right there in the center of the revolution, and so they founded a ladies' academy. And by with, but within thirty years, there were more than three hundred and sixty ladies' mm-hmm. academies all across the northwest. Elizabeth Graham started South-
0: one in New York City.
1: Yes, yeah. so Isabella Graham started one in New York City, and for those who you know followed Hamilton, the Hamilton musical very carefully, you might have read the book by Ron Chernow. And you know, one thing you can learn from that, and I, I also wrote a, wrote a book on this as well, is that Isabella Graham was like one of the most um, important people to Eliza, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, and they founded the New York um, Orphan Asylum uh, together. So yeah, these were people who were all in that tiny group of people who were really pushing forward the American Revolution. And they knew, they knew that if you question the idea that one man should stand over all men, that doesn't seem right, right? The one monarch over all men, that maybe it's also the case that one man shouldn't stand over an entire household with his wife having absolutely no say about anything that happens under, within those four walls.
0: The female academies trained the first generation of women teachers and paved the way for universal public schools. Uh, Didn't that play a role in creating a skilled workforce that was better educated than any in the world at the time?
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, this is that weird thing with history. We go, oh, I just have this. Well, I I don't know. Maybe somebody thought it was a good idea. And so therefore we created Mass education. Well, mass education comes out of, you have to have a, a group, a large group of teachers if you're going to have mass education. And that large group of teachers came from the first women who were allowed to go to secondary school, because secondary schools were closed to women. Now, by the way, you think, oh, that's just ancient history. Well, nobody would think to do such a silly thing. Well, you know, the young woman Malala, who was shot in the head, the Pakistani was shot in the head you know, 20 years, less than 10 years ago, uh, simply for saying, I would like to go to high school. So these rights that women like Abigail Adams fought for so determinedly, so courageously, despite being laughed at by their beloved husbands, these are rights that we still, women in many parts of the world, still struggle to attain.
0: What were the the uh, the rights that they were fighting for? First was obviously the right to, to learn, Uh, Angelina Grimke and Susan B. Anthony campaigned for the right to speak in public, to lobby the government, and to own property?
1: A woman couldn't speak in public? I'm telling you, Leonard, it's like one of these things where we all say, oh, feminists are just a bunch of cranky, grumpy, naggy people. These were just people who were saying things like, "Um, excuse me, how about if I be allowed to speak in public? And that was something that was really culturally... Uh, verboten, if you will, almost through the late 19th century. I mean, even Woodrow Wilson, as late as Woodrow Wilson, uh, he was he would write to his fiance that it gave him a chilled and scandalized feeling for a woman to speak in public. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Angelina Grimke was one of the first, uh, you know, First prominent female abolitionist, she was a Southerner and from South Carolina, so you know again a place where slavery was at its most rapacious.
0: She and her sister Sarah were. Uh, That's right.
1: She important. and Angeline and Sarah Grimke, and literally the the thing they wanted to do they wanted to be able to speak in public to say that slavery was wrong and a, a group of ministers across new england put out this alarmed letter saying oh my gosh close your churches to these ladies because they're they're such a bad influence on their sex and and there were many congregations and many um you know many groups within american religious spectrum who said women should only be allowed to sing in church now they couldn't mm-hmm. even certainly could not speak in church, but they could sing, and that would be it. Maybe they could say amen or hallelujah. And I am not joking here, letter It sounds so crazy. It sounds like she must be making that up. But we really start out, in, you know, at the beginning of the American Revolution, with so precious few rights for women that the right to learn, the right to speak, the right to lobby government, the right to vote. Obviously, that's the right to vote doesn't even come until halfway in the book.
0: Well, after the Civil War, uh, some women organized a nationwide petition drive behind the 13th Amendment that ended slavery. So there were women who were being active. Were they facing challenges like rape, imprisonment and such?
1: Well, they did. And and so, again, in this period, I, I always try and look at what the rights that women are attaining. Like Susan B. Anthony was a person who really established this right to lobby government. But at the same time, Susan, my other character in that chapter is a woman who is um, put in a mental institution because, by law, men could commit their wives. Now, Leonard, I'm sure you've heard, you know, we all have all heard somebody say, oh, my wife, she's so crazy. Well, in that period of time, if your wife was, quote unquote, crazy to you, you could put her into a mental institution with no further examination, no, no, no. You know, investigation of the evidence that the person was actually insane. So one of the women I look at was this woman named Elizabeth Packard, whose husband just you know, he he didn't like, he, he thought she was too, you know, she disagreed with him religiously. That's basically all it was. He was a Calvinist and she wasn't. Oh, well. <laughs> so it doesn't seem like the kind of thing, does it, that you put your wife away for? But he did. And she spent three years in this horrible mental institution. So these are women, that, for example, this woman, uh, Elizabeth Packard, predates Nellie Bly, who's famous for having done a, big send up in the New York Herald of um, conditions and mental institutions at the end of the 19th century. But this is a woman who's just fighting this basic right of habeas corpus, you know, the, the right that Lincoln suspends during the Civil War and everybody thinks, oh my gosh, Lincoln did this, suspended the right of habeas corpus. Now that is important not to diminish that at all, but to say that women were in that situation on an ongoing basis because they had no right in law.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large is Elizabeth Cobbs, whose latest book is Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce, published by Belknap Press, which is a division of Harvard University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. So, women's suffrage didn't come until the ratification of the 19th Amendment, and that was 1920. So, that was a way over a century of, of U.S. history. In fact, uh, a century and a half, right?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the country's formed in 1776, and 1920 women get the vote. But here's a weird little wrinkle, by, uh, uh, Leonard. The... Um, New Jersey, of the 13 uh, original states, New Jersey automatically gave women the right to vote from the beginning. They also gave it to free men of color. And so some of, the, at least one of the states said, oh, well, yeah, duh, you know. All men are created equal. Everybody has the right to representation in government. And so for the first 30 years or something of the state of New Jersey, women and free black men could vote.
0: Um, but there was slavery in, in parts of New Jersey. Absolutely, Interestingly, in the north of New Jersey, because in the south, it was, too, it was close to Maryland, there were a lot of Quakers, and so there were few, fewer people supporting slavery in the south of New Jersey.
1: Yeah, isn't that weird? I mean, all those little you know, ways in which things are different in different localities. So there had always been this sort of no, notion, as I said, John Adams himself said, listen, be careful, or women are going to demand the vote. Well, they did, and uh, but it took almost 150 years for them to get it. Um, and the oddity of all that, too, I think, uh, Leonard, is simply that America, even though the right to vote, women's right to vote was raised first here, 20 countries preceded us in actually giving the women the vote. Um, and that had a lot to do with race, too, by the way. There was such fear that more black women would vote. And that's one of the reasons why it got as delayed as it did.
0: Uh, getting back to uh, Abigail and John Adams, uh, I wonder about that marriage. <laughs> um, how it, <laughs> d- it Was uh, the fact that they lived apart for a l- much of it a factor in the fa- fact that it's lasted? Or did they agree on most other things?
1: <laughs> well, every marriage is a mystery, right? Yeah. <laughs> what keeps people together? Um, you know, they had one, famously one of the most um, loving relationships in American history, but they also had it in many ways a very equal relationship. And this is one of the reasons why one of the arguments I make in the book is that we really get romance because of feminists. Now, I realize this is not the <laughs> this is not the common way of looking at it, but this idea that people love each other more fiercely when they can be honest, right? When they can drop the act and they can actually say this is what i want you know i i I, I need this or i care about this it doesn't make them less romantic and in fact it gives them a basis of equality for for really loving one another and so the idea that marriage is not just about some transaction you know you get a cook <laughs> and a sex partner and i get a you know i get a living wage here you you know you pay pay for my life um that's the way kind of marriage was at the time we started out in the american colonies and what really happens over the years um, is that there's this move towards love in relationships. And Abigail and John were, you know, they were pretty hot for each other.
0: How were women punished when they engaged in lesbian relationships?
1: Well, that's a, a funny thing. I mean, lesbianism was always less... Um, Overtly policed than than uh, gay male gay relationships, and I have to say, so this is not a this is not a particular road I went down in the book, so I, I can't give it to you in detail. But um, yeah, you know, there was sort of a notion through the late nineteenth and early twentieth century that oh yeah, you know, women could live together, and in fact, if you were single, it was the more proper thing to do. You would never live by yourself, and so there were a number of women who had lesbian relationships, and really never you know, never got targeted much for that. But of course, they lived in a closet. And that was, you know, that wasn't right. And things have changed so much in that respect.
0: When did things ease up a bit? uh, When barriers to female employment come down, uh, like the rules that required pregnant women to quit their jobs?
1: Yeah, you know, there were so many laws against women in all different fields, like There was a law against women cutting hair, men's hair in Wisconsin. And there was a law against uh, women being governor of Arizona. Uh, And this was one of the arguments. Against
0: a woman being the governor of Arizona?
1: Correct. That law uh, should be
0: in existence again now.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, some people would make that argument. So, you know, or the idea that women were barred from, um, you know, being attorneys. There were lots and lots of uh, specific, very specific laws barring women from different occupations, and of course, requiring women to quit their jobs when they were pregnant, requiring teachers to quit their jobs if they married. Um, you know, it just it's amazing all the things that women literally, by law could not do. And so that's why the work of people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, was so important because um, they went through and they started just kind of hammering these down one by one and cha- challenging these one by one. But some people, that's why some people really wanted the Equal Rights Amendment because they said, well, if you do that, then you know, it just covers everything. You don't have to go through and look at every single law and take everything to trial, which of course is very costly and, and delays things.
0: Uh, when uh, was marriage redefined as a romantic partnership between equals?
1: Well, I mean I think we're still we're still in that transition, but you really see that beginning in the early 20th century I mean even someone like lady first Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin D Roosevelt they you know they were partners I mean now uh, by the way, they had some other problems in their relationship you know there's a whole affair that he does, so we won't go there but um that really starts men and to women
0: had affairs I uh, think since pretty much the beginning of time so
1: yeah, exactly. So, um, and actually, by the way, I'm I'm going to jump forward to Beyonce for a nano second, and we can go back there later if you want. But sure. Beyonce is one of the people who is part of this continuing effort to make relationships more equal and more intimate because they are equal because they are two people coming together in this loving way where each person is equally committed. She, you know, very famously released an album called Lemonade you know, several years ago where she brought her husband, Jay-Z Carter, is his last name, you know, up on, you know, exposed him to the world as having been, as having treated her as less than him because he, you know, she was committed to him, but, oh, you know, his commitment meant he can also mess around. So, you know, it was, it's, uh, in some ways I know, again, it's this thing where I was so taken with my friends that, oh, no, I'm not a feminist, you know, that would be, you know, some sort of extreme person, but, here you have someone like Beyoncé, who with such love, you know, brings her husband to account. Not to end the marriage, no, to save it.
0: You describe the decades between 1920 and 1960 on the right to earn.
1: Yeah, so that is that sort of period of time. Now, one of the women I focus on the face of feminism is Frances Perkins, who was the first woman woman to be in a presidential cabinet.
0: She was, she was Secretary a secret of list. Labor.
1: She was Secretary of Labor. That's exactly right. She was Secretary of Labor, which was a very unusual choice. And in fact, FDR, she, Frances herself, advised him against it. She said, oh, no, 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 no. She Here's a list of men who would be much better choices, who are all unionists, and that she knew that, you know, would find no objection in the labor community. And, and Roosevelt waved it aside and said, no. <laughs> I've looked at that list, I have no interest in it. I want you. And Francis, who um, really believed that the only way you know, for labor to get a fair deal in America was to pass some laws that would enable people to have a minimum wage, that would enable people to have unemployment uh, compensation, that will allow for a federal savings program, insurance program, meaning Social Security, for them to have, um, you know, a retirement fund. And so she was a suffragist, but she was also somebody who believed that You know, a lot of these problems intersected one another, right? Today we talked about intersectionality, and she always said, you know, the people who have it the worst, you know, in these labor disputes are women who have no power. And so Roosevelt said to her, you know, Francis, I I don't think it's, I don't know how in the world you can get it past the Supreme Court, how you can get it past Congress to have unemployment insurance, a minimum wage, Social Security, but, you know, you're willing to try. I'm happy to have you try And so she really creates the New Deal.
0: She helped to get the passage of Social Security in 1935, minimum wage in 1938.
1: Yeah, so every American, I mean, you and me, and I, I can't imagine there's, well, unless you're very wealthy, you know, almost every American has uh, uh, been a beneficiary of the work of this feminist who worked with men, of course, my gosh, you know, she, fa- fantastic relationships with all the men she worked with. And frankly, they're only men, <laughs> not only, but, you know, most of the people were men. Although it's very funny, she, as I said, she really didn't want this job because she also knew that, you know, you'd be in Washington and, you know, your public life will be open to scrutiny. And her husband was, her husband was mentally ill. And, um, but one of her feminist friends who has, you know, e- even more, you know, ardent on that topic, she said, you know, Frances, you owe it to other women to take this job because otherwise it might be decades before a woman is asked. And, you know, Francis, just don't be a baby because if you are, I'll murder you. <laughs> and uh, so Francis said, okay, I'll do
0: it. Now you paired her with Anne Marie Rebe. Is that how her name is pronounced?
1: Well, you know, good question. It's a German name. I always thought it was Reed, but, but I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah, Anne-Marie was a cowgirl. Um, she was a rancher from North Dakota. And, and one of the great pleasures for me in writing this book, um, Leonard, was to just visit women's lives all around the country, from, you know, Washington State to Washington, D.C., from South Carolina to North Dakota, you know, and all points in between. So she was uh, a young woman who just, you know, was this funny, interesting. She had all these marriage proposals and she just kept getting irritated because these guys would not take no for an answer. She said, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting married because if I get married, I lose all my independence. Now, this is a period of time where, you know, the wages that women have are just barely, for a long time, if a woman earned a wage, her husband got the money and um, that was the law. And so You know, the idea that you could keep your own money and have your own money was one of these things that was really important to Anne-Marie. And by the way, this was the Great Depression. So, you know, having money, having a job was even more critical. And she knew it was the law. If she married, she'd have to quit her teaching job. And she wanted; she had gotten a teaching job because she was saving up for her own ranch. You know, her dad had a ranch. And the funny thing is, Anne-Marie was one of these people... Who you know kind of could do it all, you know, rope a heifer, (laughs) brand it, and milk, and I'm saying all kinds of things you hardly understand myself. But she did all this, you know, ranch work, and plus did all the work in the house. But her dad said, you know, gosh, you know, I, you know, I I could ranch with you if if you were a boy, Anne Marie. I'd leave this all to you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she could do anything on the ranch, but be a boy. And so she's, you know, she's one of these women who had the right to earn, the right to. Oh, have some money, just so you could have some independence. It's not like and do anything gigantic with it, but have a life. That's did, what you want.
0: Did she succeed in uh, maintaining her economic independence while she remained unmarried?
1: You know, Leonard. Not all stories end as well. This is one. I was. This was the Great Depression, in the, in the end, you know she. The Dust Bowl, the Great Depression—all these attitudes sort of defeat her. Um, she's just so beautiful and so fun and so funny, by the way. God, she's a great sense of humor. But in the end, you know, she meets this guy, and he he earns thirty eight hundred dollars a year, and she earns eight hundred dollars a year. Thirty eight hundred versus eight hundred. She knows that you know it's just one thing after another. She's twenty five. Her parents want her to come back, and she finally just accepts her ring. That's what you got to do. you got to accept a ring in order to eat.
0: Well, there are some women who didn't want to marry men for obvious reasons that had nothing to do <laughs> with what we're discussing here. They just uh, were not interested in men.
1: Well, of course. I mean, there's you know, all, always that. Yeah. I think what we sort of—
0: Men were okay as bachelors, but women and uh, uh, unmarried yeah, women were looked down upon?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That whole spinster thing that if a woman wasn't married. But see, Anne-Marie was one of those people who had the kind of strength of character to just say, I don't care. Think what you want. Um, and she actually liked men. I mean, she—you know, I I, you know, I have no reason to think she was would have, you know, in a way in her own heart was a lesbian or anything. But she just didn't want to. I mean, would you? Would you? If you were told... You know, you no longer get your own bank account. (laughs) You you will no longer earn any money. You you have to go into the house. You no longer have a chance to be out there in public interacting with other people and, you know, being a part of the world. And that's what she that's what she didn't want to give up.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WNYC.org. org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Elizabeth Cobbs. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of fifty dollars or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, the book we're discussing, Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyoncé. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI dot org. That's give and then the number two WBAI dot org or call two one two 2092950. That's 2092950. During today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't, but Don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large. And then there's another thing that's happening this month. If you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more or make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a, a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings that date back to the early days of community radio broadcasting in 1949, and they've been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. Uh, Just ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to Women. .wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with L- Lopate at Large as your favorite show. And I return now to Elizabeth Cobbs. The book we're discussing is Fearless Women Feminists. Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce, published by the Belknap Press, which is a division of Harvard University Press. Elizabeth Cobbs is the author of nine books, including the bestseller The Hamilton Affair. And this is something of a departure from you, for you, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. You know, throughout most of my career, I've been a, a scholar of U.S. foreign relations, so I so I write a lot about war <laughs> and you know America's role in the world, and um, you know that's kind of where I started out as an academic historian, working at universities. But I just, you know, I wrote a book on World War I, and it ended up thinking, well, let's write about something that hasn't been written about World War I, because we had the 100th anniversary recently. And so I wrote a book on women in World War I, and there was this fascinating group of women who were telephone operators who served— as America's first women soldiers. And, um, and so that sort of got me going down the road of doing some things in women's history. And then I wrote a novel on Harriet Tubman, who was also a military veteran, and like the Hello Girls who served in France in World War I, uh, she, Harriet Tubman also had to fight for her military pension. I mean, I realize, I think probably most people don't know that. Harriet Tubman had a military pension. Because she was a military officer, she, not, not, as a, not formally as an officer, but as an intelligence officer.
0: Well, you, uh, the diverse subjects in this book include a 19th century immigrant who escaped an abuse of marriage. Uh, uh, her name was Rosa Cavalieri. And also the world-renowned gymnast Simone Biles.
1: Yeah, we cover the waterfront. <laughs> well, you know, the last chapter was sort of focused on the right to safety. And so one thing I've tried to do, Leonard, is, and honestly, this was like, you know, the funny thing when you write a book, you, you educate yourself first. You're the first person who gets educated. And I thought it would be really interesting to see how the kind of scaffolding got set up over the generations. Hmm. You know, how did we get from here to here to here? I mean, how did we get to a point where you can't speak in public? To the point where, you know, you can be vice president of the United States, right? My story starts when we have a king, George III, and it ends up with a woman of color as vice president of the United States. So you got to figure out, it doesn't all happen overnight. And so, you know, there's the right, as we talked about, right to earn and right to learn and right to vote. And the last one is the right to safety. And Simone Biles, of course, was, you know, very um, touchingly uh, part of this group of Olympic athletes who you know, went to Congress and, you know, revealed the hardest thing that ever happened to them. I mean, Simone Biles, when she talked about the sexual assault by the Olympic doctor, one man who assaulted 500 girls, you know, one guy does so much damage. And uh, Simone Biles said, you know, there's no place I I would, I never thought I'd serve my country in this way. And it's the hardest way I've ever had to serve my country. So these are young women who, you know, stood up in front of millions and millions of people and people and did, you know, crazy athletic feats. But gosh, to go to Congress and say, hey, this happened to me, that was the hardest thing they'd ever done.
0: But uh, Although you mentioned that we have a, a woman who's vice president, we're one of the only major industrialized countries in the world that hasn't had a woman as our top leader.
1: Yeah, gosh, you know, don't get me going on this. It's so... You
0: can get going.
1: (laughs) Go ahead, let loose. It is just insane. You know, not only have we never had a woman as head of government, this is a kind of a separate issue, but there are no women on the currency in the United States. You know, most bills, every country, every major country in the world, when it has its paper currency, has women on the currency. You know, they represent, you know famous poets or leaders or whatever the only the united states russia and china do not have women on the currency and you go wow why are we in that company you know why are and also similarly those are also countries which have not had women leaders so i don't know what's wrong with us leonard because in so many so many ways the united states is i mean feminism is born here it really is born here it spreads outward to France and the French Revolution and to Britain with Mary Wollstonecraft. But those people come after us, and yet we always seem to be kind of slowest in some other respects.
0: You suggest that Chicano feminist movement leader Martha Koterra, who pushed to make feminism part of the Chicano movement in, in the 60s and 70s, would have agreed with Beyonce's message of, of challenging and, uh, and uplifting men in, in one's community.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, a number of the women who are in the book are women of color. Um, Obviously, Beyonce, Martha Cotera, there there are several others as well. Um, This is this really, you know, kind of interesting thing, how race has been used to defy feminists, has been used to... um, you know, make it harder for women to work together. And Martha Cotera is a really great example. Now, by the way, most of the people in my book, because it's a history book, are, you know, dead and gone. But Martha Cotera is still around. And she is this amazing, I think she's 85 now. I mean, she runs circles around me. She's such an activist and such a political force in Texas, by the way. She's in Austin. Um, and these are women who said, you know, we really have to always be mindful of issues of race and issues of gender. And one of the one dynamic she had to deal with was, not only the dynamic of white women sometimes thinking, oh, well, you know, you're in the same situation as us. Let's just talk about gender. And she's like, no, we have to talk about race. But she was also in a situation where men in her group would say, oh, well, if you're talking about women's rights, well, you must be one of those white women. It was a put down. It was like a, you know, a gavacha, you know, these various Spanish language words for a kind of put down, you know, Yankee, if you will. And so She really had to say, listen, listen, buddy, (laughs) feminism is as, you know, is at the core of Chicanas and Hispanic women's, you know, efforts to achieve dignity, as is the fight against racism. And so in the 70s, she was one of a number of uh, black women and Chicano women and Asian women who and indigenous women who said, listen, don't try and play that card with me. You know, that if I'm loyal to my ethnic group, then I will, you know, renounce feminism. So she was is quite a force.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org is award-winning novelist, historian, and filmmaker Elizabeth Cobbs, whose latest book is Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce, published by the Belknap Press Division of Harvard University Press. Um, One of the most complex stories that you tell here involves Phyllis Schlafly.
1: Yes, now, so because,
0: because she's uh, does something very negative as far as the story you're telling is concerned, but also has a has a positive influence in a weird way,
1: yeah. so Alino, you know, a lot of listeners won't remember that name, Phyllis Schlafly, but if you're older and politically oriented, you will she's infamous because it's Phyllis Schlafly, who really does so much to push the Republican party in a more extremist far right direction using feminism. And this is one of the reasons why Leonard, my friends, would say, oh, no, I'm not a feminist. I believe in everything, everything that feminists believe in. And I personally have benefited from it in my career and my life. But no, my goodness, I'm not a feminist. Because it was Phyllis Schlafly who made that word sound like, you know, a bad name.
0: And she and went after the Equal Rights Amendment, which uh, until she started opposing it, looked like it would pass. It already There were already a number of states that had, had passed Equal Rights Amendments.
1: Yes. And in fact, a number of states, you know, have equal rights amendments, um, including Phyllis Schlafly's home state of Illinois. But um, she was, a, you know, like a lot of people on, on the right, you know, a big advocate of states' rights. She was actually from, um, sorry, sorry, she was from, <laughs> I'm going to say it wrong, uh, not Kansas City. She was from Missouri. Was Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Mo. I'm sorry, I was just trying to get that straight in my head. She was from Missouri originally. And so, you know, as a southerner, really, she was, You know, I'd always been a staunch supporter of states' rights. But here's the weird part of this. Now, most anti feminists have also, in some ways, been feminists. Because what, and I look at this in each generation to see, you know, how anti feminism and feminism, you know, wound together and what the relationship was like between those, you know, various movements. A lot of anti feminists were people who staunchly believed that women should have all the rights they'd accumulated. Up to that point, but definitely should be no further change because that would just be terrible. The family would fall apart, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
0: But they also felt that they should be given a platform, something that they wouldn't have happened in an earlier time.
1: Oh, absolutely. Phyllis Schlackley. I mean, the interesting thing about her is that she really does kick in the doors on the closed door leadership of the Republican Party. And she says, you know, you guys are happiest when we're just pouring coffee and we don't want to just keep pouring coffee anymore. We, you know, they want, the men want to keep us doing the menial work. So she really articulated very strongly feminist arguments. And, um, as you say, That gave her a platform and gave her extraordinary leadership and extraordinary um, cachet in the American political scene on the right. And um, but but dare she share it with anybody else? No. I mean, she shared that that element. Let's get women to the Republican Party leadership. But. You know, let's not advocate for any further rights. I mean, she even went so far as to say that sexual harassment, she said, well, a woman just gives off signals, and then she's basically asking for it. And so that was her her attitude. We
0: have just a minute or so left. Polls indicate that 91% of Americans consider it very important that women have the same rights as men. And I I was wondering about that other 9%. Also about uh, why we're still fighting over certain things, like a woman's right to choose and Today, male supremacists like the Proud Boys say that feminists are not even women anymore and therefore punchable.
1: Yeah. No, you know, we've seen the resurgence of a real hostile attitude towards, towards women, uh, towards women's rights. I mean, the Proud Boys and other groups on the right are, you know, say things like women should, you know, women should be wearing veils. Women, I mean, it's, it's and of course, we've seen that in Islamism, too, you know, the rise, resurgence of fundamentalist points of view. So those, those are always intention, have always been intention historically, but we're really seeing now as a real challenge to the idea that women should have any rights, which is one reason why I wrote the book, Leonard, because I think, you know, when we go around putting down our own philosophies, if we don't just say proudly in a a simple way, well, of course, I'm a feminist, you know, I, you know, I believe that men and women should have equal rights. i I believe men should you know, be able to raise their children. They, mm. Why should they be denied that? Why should they be pushed out of the house and not allowed a say in the raising of their children? I mean, this is really good for men and women, for well, men too. Well, it's
0: been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, the book we've been discussing by Elizabeth Cobbs is Fearless Women." Feminist Patriots, from Abigail Adams to Beyonce, from the Belknap Press, which is a division of Harvard University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show again today. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program or would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at wbai.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because we are going through a rough economic time. And that means that this show might not be coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. sometime in the future. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots, from Abigail Adams to Beyonce by Elizabeth Cobbs so why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online give to WBAI.org and during this month you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of BAI Buddy for $15 or more because if you make a 100 contribution to WBAI.org you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings that date back to the early days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. And they've been culled from over six seasons of of, uh, weekly radio programs. Here's, uh, give us a call, 212 2950 or go to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Locate at Large as your favorite show. And here's WBAI's program director, Linda Barr, with more about that.
2: You're tuned to listener sponsor, WBAI New York, with a moment in women's history. What I'm
1: curious to see... Do the Constitution of the United States mean anything?
2: Fannie Lou Hamer was one of the most influential and powerful voices of the civil and voting rights movements. Born in 1917, Hamer grew up in poverty in the Mississippi Delta region, picked cotton starting when she was six years old. She underwent involuntary sterilization in 61, a common practice at the time to reduce the black population. She didn't know she had the right to vote until 1962 at a SNCC. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee meeting, and then she became an organizer in voter registration drives.
1: We are a part of America because we didn't come here on our own. Our parents and our descendants was from Africa, and we didn't come on our own, but we do want to be treated as human beings. And I'm fighting for human rights, not for eco-rights. In
2: 1963, Fannie Lou Hamer was arrested at a sit-in protesting whites-only seating at a bus station. There, she was severely beaten, resulting in lifelong injuries. By 64, she helped organize Freedom Summer and took part in organizing the Freedom Democratic Party and fought to run for Congress, challenging the local Democratic Party's efforts to block black participation. We knew
1: from the beginning that we wouldn't be seated, but we wanted to explain our side whereas in a state that 42 percent of the people can't register they wasn't representing us and i think somebody it's time now for somebody
2: to be in congress that's going to represent the people of mississippi and we wasn't allowed to go inside but that didn't stop the challenge By 1968, Hamer's vision for racial parity in delegations became a reality, and she was a member of Mississippi's first integrated delegation. And in 71, she helped found the National Women's Political Caucus. You can hear more from Fannie Lou Hamer and other trailblazers by becoming a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member for $15 a month. That's only 50 cents a day, and you'll receive WBAI's historic Women's history collection and a WBAI tote bag. Please go to women.wbai.org to become a buddy in the name of your favorite program or all programs, women.wbai.org or call 212-209-2950 212-209-2950 and say, yes, I want to do my part. I want to become a WBAI buddy. Our friend, our sister, dating number at $15 a month, 212-209-2950. Please join the other new buddies to WBAI, other new people who have become buddies, who realize that free speech really isn't free. We need to pay our bills. So please become a WBAI buddy, 212-209-2950, and join other listeners this month who've become WBAI buddies in honor of women's history. This is listener-sponsored WBAI New York.
0: And we really appreciate the support of BAI, Buddies, because Uh, they allow us to plan for the future. We know that we'll have money next month and the month after. And you can always drop out at some point if uh, money suddenly becomes tight. Uh, But I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to... Leonard Lopez at large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212 209 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York City radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Um, we uh, You probably uh, been hearing a lot about how we are going through a rough time right now, please think about it. Think about what it would be like if BAI weren't here anymore. We've had such a proud, uh, played such a proud part in New York City radio from 1960 on. Well, we're preemptive for the next two days, again, because we need to do fundraising. But I hope you can join us again on Friday when my guest will be one of our favorite regular political commentators, Bob Henley. And we will see you then.